beginning of each year, on the first Sunday of the year, I like to take this sermon to just step out of whatever it is we're going through. Uh, we took a break from First Peter during the, the Christmas season, um, but, but we're going to put that off one more week. We'll get back to First Peter next week. I think it's actually part two of a two-part sermon, which is sort of funny, <laughs> but it's just the way it worked out. Uh, but I like to take this first Sunday of a new year to look at the big picture of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. So if it sounds like you've heard this sermon before. That's If you've been here more than a year, you probably have. Uh, also, if you were in my Sunday school class this morning, you're going to hear a lot of the same things because I, I just couldn't find a way to separate those two. As you give an overview of the Old Testament and the major themes, you're going to tie into a lot of the major themes of the New Testament. So our text this morning is Genesis chapter 1 through the end of Revelation. I will be reading from the NIV. I'm just kidding. I won't, won't read the whole thing. I use this picture because I, I think, and maybe this is my experience, but maybe you resonate with it. I think often life is like being handed a bunch of puzzle pieces. And you're looking at them and there's a sense of, I think they go together. They, I, I know somebody's saying they should go together. I think it's on me to put them together and figure out how does this job, this history, this hurt, this success, how do these things go together? Maybe this past year you've been handed a new bundle of pieces. Maybe some are just wonderful and beautiful. Maybe others are just full of hardship and sadness. And here you are at the beginning of a new year with this pile and you're saying, what, what do I do? Now it's 2020, right? Guess what? The pieces keep coming. More experiences, more situations, more joys, more hardships. We don't know what we're going to face this year. Every experience, every situation is like another piece being handed to us. And every day we're trying to take that and figure out what is this big picture and so you do what any good puzzle maker does. You get out an X-Acto knife and you start trimming pieces off and you make them fit, right? And when you're all done trimming the pieces and forcing them together, you have this beautiful picture that's a complete mess. And sometimes we step back and we look at our lives and we say, why is it such a mess? And I think often it's because we have taken our own thoughts, our own picture, and we have forced it on the puzzle pieces and say, I can make this fit. What I want to challenge us with today is to understand the big picture of Scripture. God gives us the picture on the box of why he created us, what we are created for. It is a picture that is given to us from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I grew up in the church, and I remember hearing the lovely Bible stories. I love what Sarah said about that, that one girl in your class. You know, what story are we learning from Scripture today? And I remember learning the Good Samaritan, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the Old Testament stories of Moses and Abraham and, and how we need to be more like this and believe more this way and do more of these things. And they were good. They were good stories. But it was almost like each one was an individual puzzle piece that was given to me as a kid. And I was taught to look at each one individually. What do we learn from this piece? And it wasn't honestly until I got to college, well, 
high school. I started joining Bible studies in high school and getting more serious about my faith. But then into college, and I took Old Testament and New Testament survey classes, and suddenly all these pieces I had been given as a kid, I realized were part of the same puzzle. That the Bible is not just a loose collection of good moral tales and stories. It is one story from beginning to end, and every puzzle piece fits. What if we would see our own lives that way? If we could look at our own lives and the mess and the pile of the puzzle pieces and say, those pieces fit into that story that God has already given me in Scripture. And he has given us the way to put them together. So today I want to look at an outline of the big picture in Scripture. Almost like the border pieces, if you will, that define the edges to say, I know somehow, some way, everything fits in here. I can't tell you for every single piece in your life, every experience, how it fits with the one next to you. That's not my job. That's God's job. But I hope I can give you the big picture from Scripture and show you that God has given that to us. One thing we're going to look at is that God has a plan from the very beginning. We do not have a reactive God that is wringing his hands going, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. He has a plan. It started at the very beginning. We have a God who takes the initiative to carry out that plan. He's not sitting around in heaven going, man, I hope these people get it. I have such great things for them. I just wish they would figure it out. We see that God gives constant care to his people as he carries out that plan. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing, but it's also a hard thing. Because sometimes God's care is to take us down roads and paths that he knows is the way to get us where he wants us to be. But that road, that path is hard. And that's part of his constant care. We're also going to look that God's plan continues forever. It has never failed. It never will. It has never changed. It is the same plan in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in our lives today, and into eternity. So let's look at this plan. Open up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we learn so many fundamental, important theological truths from this one verse. Number one, God existed before anything else. He doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't need anything. He was already here, and he was just fine before things were created. Number two, there is a God. You're not him, and I'm not him. And, and we laugh. But how many times do we think that we are the ruler of the universe? We are in control of all these things. How many times do we think we're the ones to figure out how the puzzle pieces go together? We are not God. In the beginning, God created. Everything has come from God. And throughout the rest of Scripture, there is one inescapable truth that I see among many. And that is that God always has a plan for everything that he does. So when it says he created, he created with a purpose, with meaning, with a plan. God creates us. He puts us in this garden. We talked about in my Sunday school class that the Garden of Eden was this meeting place between God and humanity where we could live in his perfect presence. And everything in the garden demonstrates what it means to live in God's presence. You have everything you need, everything supplied for you. You have purpose and meaning each and every day. Can you imagine what that would be like 
to have every need provided for, never face suffering, loss, shame, or guilt, and to know that each and every day you were doing the very purpose for which you were created? Let me answer that question for you. No, we cannot actually imagine what that would be like. We can have a glimpse. We have little inklings. But to have all of that sin, all of that mess removed, and to live in God's perfect presence. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God created us. Gave us the perfect place to live in his presence. Gave us purpose and meaning. Each one of us knit together, designed specifically for the purpose for which he created us. Each one different, all to work together. And into this picture that God created us, this perfection, we have to look then at Genesis chapter 3. Let me read for us verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit or from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. God creates us to live in this relationship with him. He gave gave us everything we needed in that relationship. And yet sin comes in and says, you should want something more. The original sin is this deception that God was holding back, that he was withholding something good. It is fundamentally a doubt of his goodness, and a doubt of his authority. You should want to be like God. Wouldn't it be better if you were in charge? That's the voice of sin. Wouldn't it be better if your life and all the universe worked the way you think it should? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In many ways... The original sin was a temptation to say, you are missing out on something good and your happiness demands that you go for it. That God is withholding something that will make you happy. Friends, that deception is as old as history and as relevant as everything we face in our contemporary society today. It is the same lie repeated over and over and over again. I want what I want, and I should get to determine what I want and what will make me happy. 
When you look at the world today, that is the picture you're going to see. People seeking their own happiness. The great sad irony of it all is that they are literally looking, seeking the very reason for which God created them. He made them to look for that, but he made them to find it in him. And the more we look elsewhere to find that fulfillment, that happiness, the more miserable and restless we will be. Our world is filled with anxiety. Our world is filled with restlessness. People saying, I don't know who I am. I need to find myself. Such a modern phrase. In the the older times, and I don't mean the 40s and 50s, I mean like the first couple centuries in, in the Old Testament, okay? Somebody said, you need to find yourself. They'd say, well, look to God. He made you. Now they say, well, go out and seek what makes you happy. And it only leads to more misery. Turn to Genesis chapter 11. One of the lesser known Bible stories, not uncommon, but the Tower of Babel fits right into this and helps us to see the effects of sin on humanity. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What are they trying to do? You see, after Adam and Eve sinned, they are ejected from the Garden of Eden. They are put out of this place where all of their needs are provided for. They are put out of the place where they live in a perfect relationship with God, where they find joy and purpose and meaning in that relationship. Adam and Eve turned away and said, we will find our meaning elsewhere. And it's like God says, okay, if that's what you want, I'm going to allow you to see what that is like. And here in Genesis chapter 11, we have the people of the earth coming together and saying, let us make a name for ourselves. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to be lost. Understand at the heart of the Tower of Babel account is people looking for meaning, purpose, protection, and happiness. Just like we still do today. And what happens? Genesis chapter 11, 5 and 6. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And he confuses their language and he scatters them across the earth. And we look at that and say, what a mean God. Imagine the drug addict when you walk into the room and take the drugs away. Does that drug addict look at you and say, you are so loving and merciful and kind? No, they look at you and say, you're awful and mean. How dare you take that away? God steps in and says, you are seeking happiness on a path. You are seeking security on a path that will never get you there. And in his mercy, he puts a big do not enter sign. And he changes the course of history. God knows 
that we can never make and stack our own bricks high enough to equal our own happiness. Never, no matter how much we try. We are really good at making and stacking bricks. Every generation comes up with new ones. Every culture comes up with new ones. Every person finds a different way to rearrange them, thinking this will equal my happiness. And everyone cries when they come falling and tumbling down and are scattered. Every building has a foundation. It's that starting point that holds everything together. We can't just take a wrong puzzle piece and cram it into the place that we think it should go so that we don't have to deal with it anymore. But that's exactly what we do in our lives. We take the foundation in the beginning God created. The foundation that everything was created by God, dependent on God, created for God, for his glory. We take that puzzle piece that is the foundation of everything else and we rip it out and we put the puzzle piece in its place that says, me. I am the basis of everything. And then every puzzle piece that comes in around it, we have to make fit with me. And it doesn't work. This is the very essence of sin. It is a world and lives built on a foundation that was never meant to hold it. Frankly, this is why we see the world crumbling. It's why we see the struggles in society. It's why rearranging the bricks of this world and our laws and our ideas and our philosophies will never work. It's not enough. So from the very beginning, we see this big picture that God has a plan. He has a plan for us to live in his presence, trusting him for everything. But we also see in this picture that people love to wander away, to seek our own happiness apart from him, to reject his authority, his goodness, and to find our own way. This continues in history throughout the Old Testament as as God, as people scatter and they're trying to find their own way. And then we enter into Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and God takes an initiative. Some of you might be here today thinking, I really should clean my life up. Maybe you're here because you made a resolution this year. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to fix my life up. That's awesome. I am so glad that you're here. But I want you to understand that the testimony from Scripture was they could not do it. The world was falling apart. We have the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see, starting in verse 1, going to verse 3, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Is there any hint of this, of God coming to Abraham and saying, you know, Abraham, you really need to fix up your life. You need to just try a little bit harder. You're not living up to my expectations. No, God steps in and says, Abraham, you can't do this. Your friends, your relatives, they can't do this. So guess what, Abraham? I'm going to do it. 
and I'm going to use you. God takes the initiative. This is always the way God's plan works. We trust what he does rather than us trying to do what he alone can do. What did the people want at the Tower of Babel? Do you remember it? Chapter 11, verse 4. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be great. And it's easy to read that in other stories in Scripture and and think that God is just this big meanie up in heaven wanting us all to be miserable. And and, and the Tower of Babel seems to support that. This, This story where they just want to be happy and he steps in and he makes them miserable. Is that God's plan to just keep us in misery? No, because he comes to Abraham and he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God says, I want you to have that thing you're looking for, but you are going about it all wrong. You're looking in the wrong place for the wrong thing and then wondering why you're so miserable for it. And God says, turn to me. I'm going to do it. Watch what I will do in your life. As we go on in history, Abraham's family grows. They live in a relationship with God, not perfectly. They make a lot of mistakes and we can identify with that. Eventually, the family has to go into Egypt where they can find food. They're enslaved there for 400 years. Still under this promise of God saying, you're my people, I'm going to do great things. And here they are in Egypt going, wait a minute, God, where is this? And so we come to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me too, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The Israelites find themselves in a situation that they cannot get out of. They are stuck. And I think so many of us have accepted a picture of God which would say the story should read that God will show up, give them good advice on what they should do, and then watch to see if they will figure it out and do it. Come on, guys. I'm going to cheer you on. Just work a little bit harder. Do the right things. Fix yourself up and you can throw off these chains for yourself. That's not the picture that we see. Now, on the one hand, that's humbling because we have to accept that we can't do it. On the other hand, it's incredibly freeing too that our salvation does not ultimately depend on us. So whether you have lived a great life or a horrible life, your potential to be saved by Jesus Christ rests solely on who God is and what he has done for you. It has nothing to do with your history. So God comes to the Israelites and he says, in summary, I will save you. 
And so he rescues them. He brings them up out of Egypt. They're, they're saved. They go through the desert. And God comes to them then and he gives them this law. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. And then he goes into a passage you're really familiar with. I hope the Ten Commandments. And we love to focus on the Ten Commandments. God said, do this. Don't do this. I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to do that. And if I do that, then I'll be a good person. But we miss where it all starts. It starts with God saying, I am your God. I have rescued you. I have saved you. The rest of the law is simply to tell us what it looks like to live in that relationship. It is not what puts us in that relationship to begin with. You cannot, by any good deeds, any keeping of written rules, any rituals, Clean your life up and save yourself. It didn't work for the Israelites. It still doesn't work today. It starts by acknowledging that he is God and I am not. And he has provided salvation. And I need to trust that rather than trying to figure it out on my own and put all the puzzle pieces together. The solution to our sin problem is always initiated by God. And the great thing is that even though we go through these times of walking away and doing things on our own, God never gives up on us. From the time of the Exodus to later on in Scripture, the Israelites are moved into the Promised Land. There's all these great miracles. And you think that the story would almost stop there, like now everything's going to be great. But they're a lot like us. And they forget. And they try to pick their pieces up and try to put it back to their, gather their own way. And they say, thanks God for getting us so far, but now I've got it. Uh, I can do, I'll take it from here, God. Thank you. And from Exodus, they go into the time of the judges where there's just this cycle of one thing after another going bad. And them forgetting the Lord, him raising up people to help them, conquering their problems, them forgetting him again, and going through this cycle over and over And then there's a time of kings where God raises up kings and the same thing happens over and over. They forget about him. They go their own way. And throughout all of that time, God never lets go. And he's constantly reminding them through these men called the prophets. He says, I love you. You are my people. I claimed you for myself. Listen to me. Come back. If you continue to go your own way, here's what's going to happen. But even there, it's so that you will come back to me. We have to look at the constant care that God gives us. And I don't mean the warm, fuzzy feelings of God making everything all right. I mean the hardship of God saying, I will take you down that path if that's where you want to go. If that's what it takes to show you that I love you. And then I have a way back. The book of Jeremiah is a difficult book. He's known as the weeping prophet. And he served at a time when Israel was just completely abandoning the word of God. Had walked away for generations. Had been warned for generations. Come back. Come back. Return. Trust in God. And they kept saying no. No. And everything is falling apart around them. And they keep saying no. And Jeremiah comes and says this 
If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. He says, if you will trust me and declare that I am God and you will not, then all those purposes I have in store for you, everything I created you for, those will take place. And Jeremiah, along with the other prophets, continued to call the people back to the Lord. And just like maybe some of you here today, they kept saying no. Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 9 through 14, Then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. In the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful God, Baal, are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people or offer any plea or petition for them, because I will not listen when they call me in the the time of their distress. That's a hard passage. But the people have said, God, we want what we want. And this is God saying, okay. I'm going to give it to you. One of the greatest hardships and trials that we ever face in our life is God allowing us to have what we actually want. So that if that's what it takes, we will see how awful it is. The irony is in those moments, we cry out to God and say, God, why? Why have you done this? Why have you? And we blame him. When God is saying, this is what you wanted. Now, you didn't realize where it would lead. You didn't realize how bad it would be, but you wanted the freedom. You wanted your own road. You wanted your own practices. You wanted your own happiness. That's what idolatry is all about. Idolatry is this idea that I can make what will make me happy. What If I worship this thing, whether it be a statue, a painting, whatever it will be, or a job, a relationship, myself, I will set this thing up and if I worship that, I will be fulfilled and will be happy. And God says, in that time, when everything's falling apart, you reach out to those things that you said would make you happy and you see what they do for you because you will not be rescued. Now, is this God giving up on his people? Not at all. Look at Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. This contains one of the more famous verses in scripture. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Oh, we love this verse and it is so good. God has a plan. That plan is for our good. And and we name it and we claim it and it means everything will go shiny and happy and warm and fuzzy and everything will be great because that's the way God wants our life to go. 
That is not the context of this verse at all. The context of this verse is, guys, you're seeking your own happiness and you're experiencing the consequences of that and that's going to continue for another generation or two. And things are going to keep being bad and might actually get worse. But know as you are going through that that the Lord God of heaven above has a plan for you and it is not to leave you stuck in that moment. It is to bring you through it to something better. You wanted that path, but he has something better for you. Don't give up on God's plan because he never gives up on you. And he says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all my heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The Old Testament contains this awful, awful time where the people are overthrown by these foreign armies. They're homes, their cities, their towns are destroyed. The armies come in and wipe them out and carry the survivors into exile. And it looks like all of God's purposes and God's plans have fallen apart. But Jeremiah gives them this message. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God says, I still have a plan. And I will make a new commitment to my people. And I will put it in their hearts. I will change them from the inside out. Not just a bunch of rules listed on a wall. I will do something different. And the Old Testament ends with this hope of this promise, but they don't yet see it fulfilled. And then we have the Christmas story. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God shows up. And he does what we could not do for ourselves. In a moment, we're going to be taking communion. This is the passage where this first takes place. Luke chapter 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not eat or will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. Do you see the plan there? 
The people were wallowing in misery, trying to find it on their own, trying to figure out everything on their own. And Jeremiah says, a day is coming when the Lord will make a new covenant. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm about to go to the cross and die in your place. That's the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of God's plan throughout all of history. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. All of the Old Testament points to our need for a Savior. All of the Old Testament points to the fact that we cannot, will not ever figure this out and fit the pieces together on our own. We need Jesus. Just as in Genesis, we have in the beginning, God created everything. So now we have Jesus, Emmanuel, the cornerstone of everything in our lives. Jesus was never a plan B. He was always the plan from the very beginning. Everything led up to him. But God's plan didn't just stop with Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, Paul prays. I won't read it all for the sake of time, but he prays for the church. And he says, now this plan, this glory is to be demonstrated in you as you trust Jesus Christ so that the world can look at you and see the difference from everything else they're chasing in this world. And I think we need to ask ourselves as the church, Is that what we're showing the world? Are we able to show them what a life lived trusting Christ looks like? Are we able to show them what a community guided by the gospel and the love and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, that that that's what that looks like? Are we able to show them something different so that when they look at us, they can say, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. There it is. Scripture ends in the book of Revelation. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega The beginning and the end to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. There's the plan. Never changed. Never corrupted. Never failed. In spite of the fact that every person along the way completely screwed up, walked away, did their own thing, rejected the Lord God. So if you're here today going, God can't save me, you're wrong. Very wrong. And I've never been so happy to tell somebody that they are wrong in my life. (laughs) This book is filled with people that we would all look at and say, There's no way God can save them. This room is filled with people that probably look in the mirror often and say, there's no way God can save me. 
And yet this room is also filled with people that have been saved by Jesus Christ. The plan from the very beginning. So as you enter 2020, let me ask you, what about you? Are you going to find your own way? Are you going to take another year to see what might make you happy and hope you can find fulfillment? Or will you come back to the God who created you, who sent his son to die on the cross for you, to offer eternal life to you, the very purpose for which you were created? He has done everything necessary and possible for you to have the very thing you're looking for, and you will never find it anywhere else. Or, you can make this year like any other year and go down the old familiar paths and wonder why you're not happy and maybe even blame God along the way. But he's holding out to you the offer of salvation, the very purpose for which you were created. Make this be the year. That's not just another year, another year of life. Make this year one of a new life with a new purpose. Where you say, yes, he is God and I am not. Where you say, yes, he is my savior, I can't fix myself. Where you say, yes, and you say, I give my life to you, Jesus. I will follow you. I have no clue what that means or where it leads, but I will find out. I trust you. Make this the year. If you're here today and you trusted in Jesus last year, the year before, years ago, Take stock of your own heart and say, am I living my picture or am I living his? Is it possible along the way I stopped looking at what God's picture is and I've tried to make up my own? Where do we need to realign our lives in trusting him and living for him? God has given us everything we need in the big picture of what he has done for us. Everything necessary to be with us, to call us his children to save us, to have us live in his presence and his plan for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk into this new year, may we humbly confess together, you are God, we are not. May we seek our own hearts and minds and admit ways that we have tried to usurp your authority to put ourselves in your place to dictate what is wrong and right. Father, may we look at our own hearts and ask ourselves, have we ever truly trusted you? Not just gone through motions, rituals, practices, but truly confess that we believe in you truly turned to you and accepted who you are, your rule, your authority over our life and everything in the world, truly turned to you and said, I am a sinner and I need to be saved by your son, Jesus Christ. And God, if there's anyone here today that has never done that, may they right now, this first Sunday of this new year, this new decade, May they turn to you and say, Jesus, you are my Savior. And may they begin that journey 
of discovering that big picture that you have for them, for their life. Not always easy, but so filled with purpose and meaning and direction and filled with a family of brothers and sisters in Christ to journey together with. As we celebrate communion together, Father, may we remember this again and again. In your name we pray. Amen.